Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm joined by a consultant cardiologist, Dr. Tom Keeble, who has been on the podcast before, the very first uh, one with a guest anyway. So welcome, Tom. Welcome. Thanks very much. And uh, today we're going to be talking about beta blockers and other medications that are applicable to cardiac arrest survivors. So my first question is, what is a beta blocker or what is a beta and why are we blocking them? (laughs) So... um Beta blockers are are drugs which, in essence, slow the heart down uh, and prevent it from having to work so hard. So they allow it to fill more slowly, allowing the heart to be more efficient. Um, They also uh, allow the heart to require less blood supply. So if you've got an artery which is narrowed and you want it to require less blood supply, beta blockers will do that very nicely. And they also act to prevent arrhythmias. And as many of your listeners will know, cardiac arrest is due to a very unpleasant arrhythmia a lot of the time called VF. And beta blockers are very good at at preventing both ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation, two mechanisms of which you can have a cardiac arrest from. So beta blockers are a very safe drug. Uh, We like beta blockers as cardiologists. Um, They're a little like Smarties, I would say, for the cardiac patients because they genuinely have little in the way of side effects or certainly worrying and uh, damaging side effects. But at the same time, they're very protective, both from the blood supply, both from a heart function perspective and both to protect against arrhythmia. So from our side, we really like them, which is why maybe a lot of your listeners and a lot of your cardiac arrest sufferers are on them. Um, And there's also a lot of good data to support why you should be on them, because they do prevent uh, symptoms, they do prevent arrhythmia and they do prevent deaths and heart failure and admissions to hospitals. So they're a very good drug. Um, Now, clearly, not all drugs get on with all people. Uh, And we do see a number of individuals coming back, not just in cardiac arrest settings, but also in standard arrhythmia settings or in other conditions where we've given a beta blocker. And patients say, I feel really, really sluggish. I can't get out of bed in the morning. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I feel useless. And that is, I would say, the big downside of beta blockers. They can make, particularly young people who have maybe been very, very well prior to anything happening to them, it can make them feel tired and it can make them feel washed out and worn out and and depressed and a bit fed up. And sometimes it can be very difficult to unpick exactly which bit is the drug and maybe which bit is related to the condition that they've suffered because there is interaction we cannot pretend otherwise but definitely beta blockers can make people feel sluggish tired and a bit fed up and that is a a common uh, if you like complaint for once of a better word the only thing i would say is that often with any drug that you take it will lower your blood pressure a bit and when you lower your blood pressure a bit very often you feel tired and a little bit suboptimal not quite exactly in the place where you were before and actually that can go with time as you kind of get used to the drug and that your body gets used to the new heart rate and the new blood pressure settings and so it's the same with blood pressure pills you need to sometimes give drugs a bit of time before you sort of throw the baby out with the dishwater no that's the wrong terminology but the bathwater yeah um you know people like to blame the drug where actually there, there is this huge interaction between drug and the illness and what's happened to them and the effect of the drug that it's supposed to have, i.e. by maybe lowering your blood pressure slightly. So I think it's a little complicated uh, and sometimes you just need a bit more time to let your body reset. How long is that time that we need to let our bodies reset? I mean, we've got several things going on there, like you say. So you've had a cardiac arrest. How long is the fatigue from that going to last? And then if you're putting the um, beta blockers into the mix as well, how long is it going to take before you get used to that? Is there any sort of general rule of thumb? I, I, the, my experience of seeing uh, patients with cardiac arrest with the fatigue is the fatigue can be quite a long-term component because of the brain injury often that's occurred, in my view. Uh, and I think that you're right, these things can be very difficult to uh, really uh, understand which component is the most important. I think with any drug, I would always want people to try and pursue them for three months unless they've had such an effect, which is so intolerable that that is not going to be possible. And then, of course, you need to discuss things with either your GP or your cardiologist. But again, with patients that have had a cardiac arrest, 
Usually these things are probably best discussed with your cardiologist rather than your general practitioner because that can be a, a challenging discussion to get those drugs just right, especially in the early stages. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, I would try and give any drug, as long as the side effects are not completely intolerable, try and give them three months. And what sort of um, side effects are we talking about that we typically see from beta blockers? So generally just tiredness and lethargy is the commonest. Of course, any drug, regardless of what your condition is, can cause a whole host of others, including gastrointestinal disturbance, headache, uh, rashes, and all those sort of more generic things. Any drug can do that. Uh, people describe sometimes a bit of dizziness because their blood pressure maybe is a little bit low. But I would say the commonest is lethargy, tiredness, and general just fatigue, which, as you say, can be very challenging with the overlaps with the condition that they may have had. Mm. And I guess it's it, it, as you said earlier, it's hard to tell which is which, which is causing that lethargy and the uh, the dizziness and things like that. It, I mean, if you're on these medications, should those symptoms perhaps go away after the three months that you talk about? Or yeah, I think certainly if patients describe those symptoms, particularly dizziness. I mean, tiredness I think is is very very common and to be expected and. Uh, I would often uh, monitor someone with a 24-hour monitoring if they truly say that they're a little bit dizzy and then maybe their heart rate in my clinic's a little bit slow because I want to ensure that I'm not over-medicating them. Obviously, the doses of beta blocker, we generally start off on a lower dose and we generally build it up over a period of maybe six months uh, to get the best dose that the patient can tolerate. Um, but at the same time, if I see someone in clinic on a modest dose and their heart rate's a little slow, their blood pressure's sort of on the lower end of normal, they describe this sort of tiredness, lethargy, I would often do a 24-hour monitoring to ensure that we're just not overcooking it a bit. Because obviously the whole point of when you exercise is that your heart rate should go up to fuel extra demand of oxygen to your tissues. And if your beta blocker is such that we're giving you too much and we don't allow that heart rate to increase, you will feel tired, lethargic and won't be able to do the things you want to do. So it's a balancing act and we need to just ensure that we're doing things just right. But we have a lot of clues from heart rate and from blood pressure that help us dictate that. And um, what are those dosages that you're talking about? I mean, can we talk about a, a specific, specific uh, drug, say, bisoprolol? Is that bisoprolol, yeah. The bisoprolol is, is definitely the flavour of the month, I would say, or even the flavour of the last five years, I would say. And the, the reason that it's not just chance, all beta blockers are cheap. So it is not a cost thing. All beta blockers have been off patent for many, many years. Um, bisoprolol first of all is cardio specific so it has a very specific effect upon the heart muscle which other beta blockers like atenolol which uh, does not and so in the setting of pumps that are not so good which many patients may have um, beta blockers the bisoprolol is is arguably the best and has some of the best data for it a couple of the others include carvedilol which some of your patients may also be on and metoprolol and all of those are what are called cardio specific atenolol and others are not and so they are tended to be used just for blood pressure lowering rather than in this much more specific sort of cardiac uh, sort of benefit aspect uh, we generally start by soprolol off at 1.25 milligrams once a day. It's generally a once a day medication. I often give it twice a day, which sounds a little crazy. But if I want to up the dose more quickly, if I give 1.25 in the morning and they tolerate that nicely and 1.25 in the evening and they tolerate that very nicely, I'm already on 2.5 within the first couple of days, which if I've only got someone as a hospital stay for maybe three, four days, I want to get their tablets the closest that they you know the most perfect in the shortest space of time and that gives me that flexibility the dose goes up to 10 milligrams in a whole day so five twice a day or 10 milligrams in the morning and that's the dose that all of the trials showed benefit from with regards to lack of blood supply problems uh, heart failure admissions and death and so that's why bisoprolol is a good drug because it prevents all of the things that we don't like uh, which in essence are heart failure, admission to hospital, and the ultimate concern of, of running into into problems with, with death and complications and mortality, which none of us want with, with hearts. So um, does uh, your your gender affect the dosage or nope. your age or anything so like that? So to be fair, as long as you're an adult patient, nothing affects that. So you can imagine simplistically if you're a 150 kilo man you're probably going to need a bigger dose to have the same effect as a 50 kilo woman for instance uh 
age, you tend to not break these things down or handle them quite as well when you're older. So again, a light elderly lady will almost certainly require a much lower dose than a young heavy male, for instance, just because they don't break the drugs down at the same rates. So very often a male uh, of 100 kilos will have 10 10 milligrams without having major problems. And uh, maybe a a smaller, uh, more fragile and and frail lady will only need maybe 2.5 to 5. Who knows? You just need to make it, you start slow and low and you build up as to what is required. And I think it's it's very, yes, pretty straightforward. It's, It's called titration. We titrate to the patient and of course, the other medicines about what is required and that you get a feel for that with experience over a period of time. I do see some, uh, I mean, um, what you're saying um, makes total sense, but I do see some people within the group who who are perhaps similar to me, sort of a, a male, maybe slightly overweight, but they're on 1.25 milligrams mm. and, and ladies who are perhaps, as you describe, who are, are smaller on the, the 10 or more. Yeah. Um, why would that be? Everyone's different. So if you are a fit young young runner, for instance, like you are <laughs> uh, or like you were, um, then your resting heart rate may well be 45 to 50. So if I go giving you 1.25 of bisoprolol, your heart rate will go to 40 to 45, which as a resting heart rate does not give me a lot of room to increase because otherwise I will make you go really slow at rest. And so there's that element, I would say to you, some people just have a slightly higher heart rate implicitly and therefore they need a bit more and they can tolerate a bit more. So a lot of your ability to as to what level of drug you get to is about what level is required. So as I say, if you start off with a heart rate of 50, you're never going to tolerate much beta blocker because your heart rate's only going to go south from there. Many people's heart rate starts off at 80. So you've got loads of room to come down from that. Does that make sense? So the biggest determinant of the dose you end up having is the starting heart rate and blood pressure. Okay. So if it, quite a lot of uh, sporty people do have a, a low base, Absolutely. Low heart rate. I mean, I think I probably did have about 50, I think it was. Yeah, My, so mine dropped down quite a, about 10 beats per minute um, when I started taking them. Absolutely. So there's, yeah, you haven't got much room to go. So you can't ever have a big dose. Otherwise, you'll end up potentially being paced if you've got a defibrillator because you'll go too slow, mm. which you don't want. You want your own heart to be beating rather than a paced beat if you can. Mm-hmm. It's always more efficient. So um, you talked about um, sporty people there. Um, are there different types of beta blockers that can be applicable to people with different lifestyles? So if you're sporty and you don't want them to go down quite so much, is the one that will give the effect without having the impact on their, their sporting lifestyle? No. <laughs> no, it's a very simple answer. I mean, all beta blockers will do the same thing. They will all slow your heart rate down and they will all a little bit drop your blood pressure. And so... If I saw a young sporty person, I wouldn't preferentially give them one drug over other. I would tend to give them bisoprolol because it is our kind of go-to beta blocker, which is well tolerated in general uh, and up titratable very easily. So no, the answer to that is no. Okay, so if people uh, are sporty and they get put on a beta blocker to reduce their their heart rate, is there a what should they be aware of overtraining or doing extra training to get that back up again? No, I think that, so I think what we must be clear on is that if you're sportier and your heart rate's 55, we are not giving you beta blocker to slow your heart rate down because it's already slow. It's slower than it should be already. It should be 60 beats a minute. We are giving you beta blockers to prevent arrhythmia, which is probably why you presented in the first place. So do not get confused as to the rationale as to why you're having the beta blocker. You're not having it to slow your heart rate down. You're having it as an anti-arrhythmic to prevent VTVF happening again. That's the key thing. So we want you to have the best dose you can tolerate with an acceptable side effect profile, with an acceptable resting heart rate and heart rate on exercise that allows you to do what you want to do. And that's why it's all about titration. And that's why everybody will be very slightly different. Why, when I originally had my cardiac arrest, I uh, was diagnosed as idiopathic and I left the hospital without any medications at all. Uh, yet I see plenty of other people who come out of the hospital with a whole bundle of medications. It's a similar situation to me as well. They're, they're idiopathic. Um, why, why would that be? Okay, well, I think that while, of course, I understand what you mean by idiopathic, you're, you're suggesting that we don't 
truly know why you had what you had and the kind of crest. There was no ultimate cause found. But different people will have no ultimate cause found in a slightly different way. So let's say, for instance, uh, we do an angiogram on you and you have some mild cholesterol buildup in your artery. That's not the same as someone who has completely clean arteries. So if you have arteries that are absolutely clean as a whistle, there's probably no benefit to be had from statin. However, if you have buildup, minor furring of buildup in those coronary arteries, one might argue that even though we don't think it was the cause of your cardiac arrest, you would benefit from statin therapy and maybe even aspirin therapy. So do you see what I mean? Not everyone is quite the same, even though those two causes were the same, i.e. they weren't your coronary arteries. There's different grades of atheromatous buildup in your coronaries or furring up of your arteries. Number two, you may go home on some tablets because you've got high blood pressure. So you may go home on Ramapril, for instance, because your blood pressure was found to be in hospital high that you'd never noticed before. So you could attract that medicine, not because of your cardiac arrest, but because of your high blood pressure, which you didn't know about before. Maybe you did know, but you ignored. Thirdly, uh, arrhythmias. So depending on the, the different sort of arrhythmia, depending on whether you've got a defibrillator, depending on what the perceived risk is and what was witnessed, if you will, during your inpatient stay, some people may go home on beta blockers, some people may not. I think as, uh, as a rule, most people who have had a ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest, most patients will go home on a beta blocker, if I'm honest, certainly in my practice, because we know it will damp down the future issues of ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia which is what most patients want and regardless of whether you've got a defibrillator in place as your insurance policy it's still not very nice if you have a shock no one wants a shock you want it to be there uh, as a as a as insurance policy if it has to do its job but you'd much rather it just sat there for the rest of your life and and doesn't bother you all for the rest of your life but you know we just don't know and we don't have a crystal ball so i think even though you might be diagnosed as idiopathic which in our view that means you didn't have a heart attack and when we do an MRI of your heart muscle, it is normal to all intents and purposes. And we can't find any other reason why you had a cardiac arrest. Then there are just slightly different reasons why you may or may not have certain medications. There will also be different preferences of physicians in different hospitals that some physicians don't believe in that therapy or don't believe in this and therefore you may go home with no tablets where someone else may go home with a bit of statin it's not that there's huge differences between the practice it's just that some people that's their practice and so I think it's not entirely surprising in anything in life that if people go home with different underlying reasons for a cardiac arrest they're going to go home with different medicines cardiac arrest patients are very very variable in their presentation in their treatment and in their follow-up and their drugs and that's because there's a whole menagerie of different causes that we have to factor in so although you've all had the same end point of a cardiac arrest how you got to that and how you are then looked after afterwards will be incredibly different on an individual basis i think that's really important to remember mm-hmm uh, it, make, it makes sense, and um, I guess each physician and uh, like practice, as you say, they, they've got different experiences, and so they, they, there's no protocol or something saying you, if you've had a heart attack, you've got to have this medication, is there? Well, to be fair, no, there is. There so is. heart attacks are much more straightforward. Okay. So if you have a good old-fashioned heart attack, which some of your listeners will have had and then had a cardiac arrest... Actually, the medical treatment is really evidence-based and incredibly standardised. So you will get five drugs, I can promise you. You'll get aspirin. You will get super aspirin, which will either be what a tablet called clopidogrel or um, ticagrelor. One of those two is a super aspirin for your stent, which you usually would have had in the setting of your heart attack. You will be on a beta blocker. You will be on a statin and you will be on an ACE inhibitor. So that's five tablets and that is universal across the westernized world. Now, there may be slight little variations on which one, which dose, which this, which that. There may be some water tablet added in. There may be another blood pressure pill added in. But those core five will be very, very clear on almost every patient that has a heart attack. Not only that, we are audited on that. And you can look up the audit data of across the whole of the UK, which hospitals are. And we're above sort of 80 percent on most of those. So over 80 percent of these patients will get those five drugs. 
So the, the statin and the ACE inhibitors that you mentioned, mm. what, what do they do? So statins prevent further vascular events by decreasing the cholesterol and decreasing the inflammation in the wall of the artery, which promotes heart attacks and strokes. So they're very powerful anti-inflammatory drugs. And that's only been discovered sort of in the last five years or so. It's not just driving the cholesterol down. It has anti-inflammatory properties within the vessel wall too. The ACE inhibitor will lower blood pressure and that's what it's there to do. But actually its predominant role after a heart attack is to prevent fibrosis in the heart muscle. So when you have a heart attack, a blocked artery, and you have some damage to the heart muscle, which is essentially inevitable, that damage then fibroses over time. So what does that mean? So with dead tissue, it's a bit like a, an injury, if you like, on muscle on your leg. Um, let's say you have a really nasty bruise. You know that over time, it sort of the bruise comes out and then it sort of becomes slightly hard nodular tissue. The, the heart's fairly similar, but that hard nodular tissue in the heart doesn't isn't so useful and doesn't pump as well. So if you can prevent the fibrosis, you can prevent it, the heart becoming stiff over many years. And that we know is beneficial. So, yeah, ACE inhibitors are vital, as are beta blockers, as are statins. And then, of course, aspirin and super aspirin protect your stent, if you will, if you've had a stent, from further uh, blood sort of sticking to it, platelets and, and red cells sticking to your stent to then cause further problems down the line. So, um, for heart attack patients, how, how many get a stent and you clear the actual problem without any medications? Or? Well, so I think... It, there are two types of heart attack patients, both of which can cause cardiac arrest. The first one is a completely blocked artery heart attack, which causes a cardiac arrest. Those are generally treated with a stent more often than not because they're blocked and you need to then push all that blockage out of the way and keep it out of the way. Some patients, maybe 30% of patients, will present with what we call a non-blocked artery heart attack, where an artery's kind of played up for a bit of time. It may have blocked for a very short period of time, but by the time they get to us uh, in the angiogram suite at the cardiac center, we'll take a picture and everything will look as if flows very good to all three major arteries. We can then say, look, I think that area there has caused the problem, but it maybe is only a 30% narrowing that does not warrant a stent to keep it out of trouble. And we would then rely on the medicines to do the job rather than a mechanical scaffold to hold it all out the way because it's not bad enough to warrant a mechanical scaffold to hold it all out the way. So again, we just have to, unfortunately, I'm afraid, be guided by our clinicians who at the time think that treatment X or treatment Y is best for them. So if someone's coming out of a hospital and they, they've got a, a pack of medicines that you've tried to get to as near perfection as you can while they're in the hospital... Um, how long should they get a review of those medications and you know if they're not happy because i do hear about people who say they, they've been discharged and then they haven't seen a, a consultant uh, for about a year or at least um and should they just go back to their gp are they is a gp um authorized or uh, authorized not the right word but um in the right position to be able to um alter those dosages yeah, well, I think that, so of course, the answer is yes. GPs are, are trained professionals. They may have little understanding of cardiac arrest, as has been explored, I think, before. But at the same time, they know why they're on the drugs. They're able to interpret the discharge summary and they're able to understand uh, why you're on certain drugs from their knowledge. Um, I think we do have a problem in the UK that patients discharged after cardiac arrest are not followed up reliably and in a robust fashion because I think, you know, in an ideal world, people should be followed up probably at one to three months, nice and relatively early to say, how have you been? How have you got on with these medicines? Because for me, there are two major aspects to the recovery, if you will. Part of the recovery is almost like a standard heart attack where you review symptoms of what after a heart attack you might get, breathlessness, chest pain, and you review the medications to check that the symptoms and the medications are good. And that's a standard cardiology outpatient appointment. The problem is, of course, we know that cardiac arrest patients and their families have much more burden of problems, be that psychological, be that cognitive, be that uh, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic, whatever. There's a whole host of other additive factors which are on top of that which is why i think cardiac arrest patients need a completely bespoke and different follow-up service to enable not only the cardiology side the medicine side but also then the psychological cognitive uh, anxiety depression family 
job, uh, mortgage, you know, all these other things to be explored in a much, much more robust and, uh, and, and signposting way to help at an early stage before the bailiffs are at the door because you haven't paid your mortgage for six months. You know, that there are so many bad stories out there about how patients after cardiac arrest, you know, really struggle and are not looked after. So I think I think we can do things better. And as you know, our aim is to try and make things better with an early review by both a physician and a nurse to improve this early phase of cardiac arrest. But I think the bottom line is, is that you will go home with 28 days, whichever hospital you come out of, you will go home with a month's supply. I think it's absolutely vital you meet up with your GP within that first month to go through the tablets and discuss, yes, we are going to continue them because they are important. And I think that's really important. And we have patients come back, oh, I was only given 28 days. I thought that that was enough. You know, and we have to educate all patients that this is a likely lifestyle thing for the rest of patients' lives to reduce the further risks of these bad things happening again for the rest of their life and then try and optimising their quality of life and, of course, their length of life. And what we all want is both. Other things that people can do to actually um, mitigate the, the amount of tablets they're taking and the dosages, can they alter their lifestyles and things like that? I think... Uh, lifestyle is always important no matter what condition we have we can make adaptations to our life to improve the chances of that happening again be that weight loss be that more exercise be that improving our diet be that reducing our stress there's lots of things we can do so that is always important but i do find a number of patients are obsessed by the number of tablets they're on and obsessed by the dose of the number of tablets that are on and i think that's that's not right i think you need the amount of tablets you need to prevent you having further problems and that's a very bespoke case-on-case decision and you need the dose of tablets that you need some people will require the lowest dose some people require the highest dose and i think you have to understand that and trust in your physician to get that dose right for you now if you're getting side effects you might require a lower dose i completely understand that but i think many patients sort of compete with themselves to be on the lowest possible dose of the lowest possible number of tablets i think that's a mistake but how do you know what actually is the optimal for you? If, if for example, like me, and I know other, many others who do feel tired a lot of the time, and uh, I, I do think, oh, could I be on a slightly lower dosage of what I'm on? So I tend to do two things. Number one, you need to trust your physician. You need to trust the doctor that's seeing you. That's really important. Because if you don't trust them, you won't believe what the drug is. If someone hasn't seen them for a year or so. Okay. Well, I think... Uh, you can do a couple of things. Um, what I tend to do with patients is patients tend to have pretty clear ideas as to which drug is causing their bother, is my experience. I tend to then, with the patient, discuss the pros and cons of taking that drug. And if in your consultation, and I think this should be a cardiologist, if I'm honest, rather than a GP, but the GP can do this if they feel comfortable. Uh, if you think that the the outcome is not going to be... you know. If you've got someone with a very nasty arrhythmia uh, who has been beautifully controlled on a beta blocker for five years, who says, I want to try and come off it and see how it goes, that's fine. But as long as the patient understands that the flip side of that is that their arrhythmia come back and they may become very poorly. So we have to weigh up the pros and cons of each drug. But I think often with patients, the only way you actually find out is by a short discontinuation most drugs last less than 24 hours so the argument would be if under the uh, care of your physician be it cardiologist or gp you choose to stop a drug for say one week then be very honest to yourself about has that had any effect beneficially to the symptoms you were describing if the answer is no then you should go back on the drug if the answer is my world's turned around and i feel absolutely mind-blowingly good then you could argue that the drug caused those side effects and that your life is much better. We're not trying to make people's lives miserable by giving you as much drugs as we can. That's not our aim, although it does for patients sometimes feel like that. Our aim is to give patients the best possible drug therapy based on evidence to make them live the longest and best quality life that we can. Now, the quality of life thing comes in because if we're making you have horrible side effects and your quality of life is miserable, we need to reevaluate that risk uh, and, and benefit relationship with the drug. Mm-hmm. That sounds sensible. I mean, there was on one of the previous podcasts, I don't think it's actually come out yet, but um, there was uh, one of the people was talking about, uh, or survivors was talking about their, the, the, fa- the fact that the um, bisoprolol is 
was just making them so tired that their their quality of life was really low and they they asked to uh or someone else in the group had recommended another one that they had been put on. Just wonder what your thoughts are, were on hydroquinidine. Not a drug I use very often. Uh, I would tend, uh, if there's a drug that people don't like or don't feel they're getting on with, I would switch it to another beta blocker that may well have very slightly different properties in the way it interacts with the patient. But usually it will be that we're overcooking it. We're giving you too much and that a lower dose may be better. But, you know, at the end of the day, every patient can get any side effect from any drug at any time. Uh, And often it's not even the drug itself. It's the binding agents that bind the drug together to make a tablet. Do you know what I mean? The coating of the tablet. There's so many different variables that people cannot get on with that I would generally switch them to a more orthodox other beta blocker because there are four to choose from. And very often you'll get on with a different one. So if you are experiencing side effects, then you should just Definitely. go back and Absolutely. try something else. Absolutely. The other thing that can be very, very helpful, it can be quite challenging when you're sent home, for instance, on five drugs, all started at the same time when you've never been on any drugs before, to honestly work out which one it is. How would you know? You started all five on the same day and you've got side effects, but you don't really know which one it is. And that can be a challenge, if you ask me. Whereas if you just start one drug and you think, well, I didn't have this last week and I've now got this, it's probably the drug. So I think sometimes you need to just have a bit of uh, guidance as to that's unlikely to cause that side effect. It's probably this drug. And we usually know the culprits, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Just to- touching on sort of side effects. There. There's a couple of um, side effects that people have sort of raised to me. And maybe you could sort of talk a little bit more about them. Um, can they affect someone's ability to stay warm or cold in a temp in temperature extremes? Hundred percent. Beta blocker classically give you uh, cold hands and feet and toes, peripheral uh, parts of your body always become cold. Always. Okay. Well, no, always is unfair. Commonly. Commonly. <laughs> can that cold feeling extend to being in the throat and the neck? Someone's been a long time taker of uh, sotalol. Um, and he experiences this feeling? Any drug can cause any side effect would be my slightly blanket term uh, is the honest answer, so yes. So in, in these sort of um, sort of weird ones, if you like, or unusual cases, should people go back to their GP and sort of... Yeah, I think it just depends. It's all about all, every drug decision we ever make is about the risks of taking the drug versus the benefits that sh- that should be perceived for you to have as to why you're taking it in the first place. You know, if you're taking Sotalol, it's doing a great job with your arrhythmia, but you've got a slightly cold neck. I'd probably get on with it. It depends how bad the neck discomfort and you know, if it makes you feel so ghastly that life's not worth living, then fine, you've got to try a different drug. It's it's weighing up these things. But I think that, yeah, you've just got to make sensible, pragmatic decisions with your physician. Okay, another one which is uh, very relevant to me, weight gain as well. Is, uh, is that because people's... Um I know a lot of people say they, they've put on weight since they've been, and that was exactly my case after I started taking it as well. Is that because you can't burn off the calories that you could before and you're not as active? Um, well, I think, again, we have to put it in the context that if patients have suffered cardiac arrest, they're unlikely to immediately go back to all the things they were doing prior to their cardiac arrest, both from a psychological aspect, from a physical aspect, from a whole host of aspects. So, I mean... Beta blockers per se should not change your metabolic rate. Um, it's a bit like smoking, isn't it? When people say they stop smoking, people put on five stone, but that's because they eat instead of smoking. So I think there are lots of different things that can happen to people. I wouldn't necessarily blame the tiniest dose of beta blocker to cause weight gain, is the honest answer. I think it's it's likely to be multifactorial. Can you um, develop a resistance to the sort of drugs over time? Good question. So... Most drugs have a, a a bit of, they call it tachyphylaxis, a bit of uh, resistance, if, for want of a better word, because the body changes the number of receptors it has and therefore the uptake and its ability to determine it. Uh, isosorbide mononitrate is a particular drug given for angina that does that. So the answer to your question is absolutely yes. Uh, but most patients who are stable on a drug will have a stable effect profile is the honest answer but certain drugs certainly can have uh 
for want of a better word, resistance as you go on. The other thing, of course, is that adding in new drugs can change the uh, the breakdown of other drugs in the liver. And so some drugs that were having a really big effect by taking a different drug could have a less effect because they're being broken down more quickly in the liver. So don't ever forget about what we call polypharmacy, lots of drugs interacting with one another, that you can have a very, very stable regimen for 10 years. You add in a particular tablet for x y or z and it changes all of those dynamics warfarin's a classic example so you can be stable on warfarin for five years you add in a drug whichever drug you need for another treatment uh, and it completely sends it do dally is, is warfarin still prescribed rarely so warfarin has now been superseded by uh, a once or twice daily preparation that does the same to everybody that doesn't require monitoring the only indication now for warfarin is in people with mechanical valves pretty much uh, i.e valves that uh, are implanted surgically that are made of metal generally mm-hmm. and have moving parts and so uh, there is no indication and there's no license for these newer drugs for that and i don't think there ever will be the data doesn't look very good for that so if you have a mechanical valve warfarin is likely to be for the rest of your days for pretty much every other condition that requires blood thinning like with an, a warfarin light drug pretty much everybody will now be on these newer medicines apixaban riveroxaban uh, they're called uh, direct uh, oral uh, anticoagulants what why are they uh, the preference now they don't need monitoring that's an amazing thing for most people because it's a real pain to have to go once or twice a week to have your warfarin checked and dose adjusted you give the same dose to everybody pretty much there are some minor variations here and there it anticoagulates perfectly to everybody because it affects a downstream part of the coagulation profile uh, and you know, why wouldn't you like that? You know, it, it, and it does it much more quickly. So you know, any one of your listeners that's been on warfarin will realise it's a, it's a bit of a pain in the backside, both for clinicians and for patients. Not only that, but warfarin can be overdone very easily. And if you have an INR of seven, your risk of bleeding is huge. It can be underdone very easily. So your risk of stroke, if you're taking it for stroke prevention, is very high because you're not doing what you want to do. So to have a drug that does quickly the same in everybody once or twice a day with no monitoring is a complete game changer a couple of little things practical um, things does it matter when i I take my um, beta blockers Uh, so um, i think the key thing about taking drugs is taking them at the same time most days that's the key statins we know should be taken in the evening uh, and generally are taken in the evening that's the advice um I can't quite remember the pharmacological reason as to why, but they just are. They're given in the evening. Uh, Warfarin also tended to be dosed at six in the evening, but most people, uh, say, aren't on warfarin anymore. Most of the other drugs uh, often come in the morning. Uh, Certainly aspirin, we tend to suggest, and maybe the the antiplatelets, the the super aspirin that keep your blood less sticky to protect your stent. We generally tend to take those with breakfast so that they get a little bit sort of mixed up with food so that... It just is a little easier on your stomach because aspirin and super aspirin can be a little aggressive on the stomach and can cause indigestion and potentially ulceration. And so we need to be mindful of that. But I think the key thing is, is take the drugs regularly, take them at a regular time interval that suits your life, that you can remember to take them. That's really the most important thing. And what if you you miss a dosage or you overdose, as it were? Yeah, I think that um, if you miss a dose... uh, It depends when you forget. So if you forget uh, sort of within the first 12 hours, I would probably just take the dose that you've forgotten to take. If it's after 12 hours, often we would just not bother with that. I mean, you've you've almost got to the the next dose anyway. So Mm -hmm. I think you just have to have a pragmatic stance on that. But it does depend to an extent what the drug is and how late you are with it. I think the, the drugs for me that are most important for patients are the aspirin and super aspirin because they protect stents. And again, if you don't protect your stents, you're at risk of clotting off your stent and that is bad. The other drugs which are particularly important are these new anticoagulants that we talked about, apixaban, rivaroxaban, because they often are protecting you from stroke. And again, if you don't take those, your coagulation profile goes from being nice and thinned appropriately to back to normal again. And there, that change between being nice and thin and back to normal is your risk period for stroke. And that's bad. So again, I think be very, whereas if you don't take a beta blocker or you don't take an ACE inhibitor, then yes, your blood pressure may come up a bit. You may be slightly more at risk of an arrhythmia, but 
the the the, 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 the sort of uh, sequelae is likely to be less significant than the antiplatelet therapies and the anticoagulant therapies. I think they are particularly important. But the honest answer is all drugs are important. Don't run out. Take them at the same time. And if you don't get on with them, seek medical attention. Can other things affect the uh, affect the effect of, of beta blockers like f- food or alcohol or dehydration or um, not too much? No, uh, no. I think that when you're dehydrated, you'll tolerate a slow heart rate less well. It doesn't change the way your drug works. It just you tolerate it less well because you have less circulating volume. But no, I mean there are you know like anything in life some drugs do are affected by grapefruit juice for instance some drugs are affected by other drugs again you just have to rely on your physician to ensure that they've looked at those interactions in the british national formula and ensure that there's no concerning interactions between drugs talking about interactions what a lot of people at this time of the year suffer with hay fever and they're looking to get some sort of relief from that maybe via antihistamine you got any thoughts on that yeah i think the key thing is is that there are antihistamines are not just one global type of drug there are a number of subtypes of antihistamines some of which have more drug interactions than others so i think the key thing is most antihistamines are available over the counter uh, I would suggest to you that when you go and say to a pharmacist, I would like a antihistamine, they're not all the same. Go there with your past medical history up front, which they'll generally ask you anyway, your allergy profile and your drugs that you're already on. And they will select the right antihistamine for you that will not interact with your drugs or your condition. And I think that's the best way to go about things without getting into too many specifics. If um, I don't like the tablets that I'm on, can I just stop taking them? Uh I think that it would depend. I mean, it can be challenging to get a general practitioner's appointment at relative short notice if you're pulling your hair out. Um, Again, I think we are trying to involve pharmacists more and more in the care of patients. It would not be an unreasonable plan. You can always go and see a pharmacist, say, these are the drugs I'm on. These are the ones I'm struggling or This is the one I'm struggling with. What is the ramification of me just stopping it? And they'll give you, as I talked to you about aspirin and super aspirin, the ramification of stopping those is truly potentially life threatening. So you wouldn't want to stop those. The ramification of stopping ramipril, for instance, is your blood pressure may go up a little bit. Not the end of the world, in my view. So I think you need to seek advice just before gaily stopping a medicine. Say we've got a couple of imaginary patients now. Um, we've got heart attack Harry, idiopathic Ian, and cardiomyopathy Kerry. So could you just sort of quickly run me through through your thoughts about how you would tackle these patients? And- so I'll probably be the briefest on heart attack Harry because I think we covered a reasonable amount of, of him earlier. So heart attack Harry will often come to the cardiac centre uh, as an emergency within the setting of a cardiac arrest and have an artery unblocked with a stent more often than not those stents will require two tablets aspirin and super aspirin they will generally also then go home on a statin because they've had coronary artery disease causing the heart attack they will have often a beta blocker and often an ace inhibitor to prevent the fibrosis and those five tablets make up a very core group of medicines that heart attack patients who have had cardiac arrest or heart attack patients without cardiac arrest will go home on so i think they're in a way, if I'm going to, for want of a better word, the most straightforward and the most evidence-based, I would say. Then when we come on to idiopathic Ian, um, idiopathic Ian, I think, is probably the patient group that can have the most variability of what they might go home on, depending on the idiosyncrasies of maybe the treating physician, but also maybe what the MRI looks like, maybe what the angiogram looks like, even though it's not the cause, did it have some atheroma that warrants a statin, for instance? Um, but I think that the idiopathic patients, potentially there is yeah, uh, more variability in what you may or may not go home on is the honest answer. And again, that's a challenge for patients in your group. You're all an idiopathic patient, but you're all potentially treated differently, which for anybody's sort of mind seems a little strange. But Half the reason why that is, is because we don't know what to do, is the honest answer. So with heart attacks, we know all these drugs are good. There's loads of trials showing they're good. In idiopathics, there's much less robust, randomised data to show this drug's better than no drug or this drug's better than that drug. Because idiopathic patients following a cardiac arrest are 
an increasing number of patients, but they're still not particularly well studied, I would say. So the evidence base for idiopathic ear is much less. And so it comes down to expert opinion and consensus. And that can be variable from hospital to hospital, consultant to consultant and expertise to expertise. So I think that probably helps understand why that could be a, a variable. And then finally, uh, cardiomyopathy Kerry, um, she, uh, again, cardiomyopathy is a very broad church, so to speak. You can have a hypertrophic uh, cardiomyopathy, you can have a dilated, a really big cardiomyopathy, you can have a whole host of different types of cardiomyopathy. And I think, to be fair, again, you are highly likely to be involved with a tertiary or a very specialist cardiomyopathy service who will tailor your drug therapy to their expertise and experience in that specific area. Again, with the sole aim of giving you the best drugs for your condition to keep you out of hospital, keep you alive and keep you well. So I think within all of those cardiomyopathies that we've lumped up into one female patient, you know, there are lots of different presentations sort of uh, actual underlying pathologies that may get treated slightly differently. I think the key thing with cardiac arrest patients is that I think you're a very, very variable group of causation. And we have to just be very mindful of exactly what the causation was. And that's why so many of you will go home with so many different drugs and so many different follow-ups and so many different plans because you're all very different. Uh, And it just depends on the root cause at the start, how much damage there is to the heart, how much risk there is of ongoing arrhythmia and and problems. And each patient has to be very, very specifically thought through by a team of experts to get the right plan. And that plan is then specific for you and is not extrapolatable to anyone else in your peer group, I would suggest. And that's the challenges that you guys as a group of individuals pose to us. We've got to really think long and hard sometimes about what we do to give you the best possible long-term outcome. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Uh, I've got a couple of sort of uh, specific questions from people now, if that's okay. Um, all right, I've just started rambling with a group of people in the Northwest and I found walking on flat surfaces, I can go for miles. But when it comes to going uphill, I can only do a few yards at a time. Uh, would this have something to do with the beta blockers? And he's on bisoprolol, 10 milligrams, but it's on a whole host of other goodies, aspirin, atovastatin, uh, ep, I can't say half of these things, furosemide, lansoprazole, ramipril, and a bunch of others. I think it's very difficult to know. Uh, and so do I think it's just the drugs? No, I don't. I think uh, he would benefit hugely from spending some time with his cardiologist, I think. So we need, we would need to understand a little bit more about his condition. You know, the body's actually very good at rest and often quite good on a flat because on the flat you can walk nice and a nice-ish pace but not ex, uh, uh, use too much energy up. When you go uphill, the amount of energy you have to utilise and the amount of oxygen demand from your heart and everything else goes up a lot. So it could be that your arteries aren't perfect. We don't know from this case presentation. It may be your heart function is not normal. So it's very happy walking on the flat because it hasn't got to work too hard. As soon as you try and stress your heart a bit more, it has to work harder. So I think it's much, much more likely that there is, if you like, old problems with the arteries that maybe have an issue that may be fixable or not. Or there's a problem with the pump, which may be fixable or not that limits your, your, I think it's quite a common sort of feature of patients with heart disease, I would say, rather than blaming the drug per se. But I think we, we can't unpick that without knowing a bit more about him. Well, the, the, I think you've sort of kind of touched on this before, but this person was put on by Soprolol as a precaution and they've had the reduced um, dosage because they were constantly tired. Um, but they've never really been followed up since then and he's asking why is there no follow-up to how ask how the patient is feeling and the side effects is that i think the, the, the bottom line is i think that this is a resource issue we have huge problems in cardiology and in almost every specialty in the uk currently with too many patients needing to see us and not enough expert doctors to see the patients uh, and it's not that we don't want to see you it's just that at the moment we are at breaking point and we can't see you effectively and that's a huge problem 
if it's a big problem for him, he should go back to his GB or get, a, get an GP appointment. GP and or then forward on to the... Your GP is your, is your access to your cardiologist if you don't have one. And there's someone who says, I feel like I can't win. Do I just keep trying different meds due to my SCAD heart attack and cardiac arrest? I'll be on beta blockers for life. Well, uh, oh, SCAD, SCAD were opening up a huge can of worms. So just very briefly for your listeners, without wishing to bore them too much. Uh, SCAD stands for uh, Spontaneous uh, Coronary Artery Dissection. And what that means, it's usually in females, uh, usually between the ages of 30 and 70. Uh, and usually they've got some sort of connective tissue disorder that they maybe don't know about. And instead of the artery blocking because of a narrowing and because of a clot, it blocks or narrows because it's got a tear in it that bleeds into the artery wall and then stops blood going down uh, down the uh, down the vessel. Um, now, this is uh, a problem because it presents uh, often with heart attack and with cardiac arrest, and we don't quite know how to treat it properly. Um, we can't certainly treat it just like an old-fashioned heart attack because it's completely different. Uh, and so there's a lot of ongoing research to understand which tablets are truly effective for this patient group and which ones are not. And I think probably I'll best leave it at that. But uh, yeah, it's, there, there is an expert centre in Charing Cross, uh, Dr. Abby Al-Husseini, who's a real expert in this area. I think uh, if you haven't seen an expert in this area, I would suggest you go and see her. She's doing a lot of good ongoing research in this field uh, and she can support you getting the right tablets that are going to make you better for the long term um i think that's been a fantastic uh, hour or almost an hour of your time tom so thank you very much for that and there's been some great um answers to some of the questions and some great info on beta blockers and other medications so thank you very much for your time and uh hopefully we can have you back again on to answer on other questions or areas of interest that um, matter to cardiac arrest survivors so thanks very much my pleasure thank you for inviting me